This is episode 22 of Matrix Assassins. I am your host, Velo. And I'm your other host, Nicole. Thank you so much for tuning in. We just wrapped up another episode with Peter Moon. Another one. (laughs) I had so much fun. I've always had this weird affinity to time and time travel, and I didn't necessarily understand how the Montauk Project really dealt with time warping and different dimensions and all of these things. So Peter Moon was incredible, and we're so excited to drop this episode for you guys. But before we do that, Nicole, do we want to talk shop? Sure. Okay. (laughs) So we both have full-time jobs, which is no excuse. You guys are our heart and soul. But it's taken a little bit longer than usual to get up this website, but we promise that we will have this up. Yes, it's all our fault because we're really picky and we also like really complicated color palettes. So we've been going back and forth a lot on a lot of things. On, it, it was the color palette. <laughs> it really, yeah. So, anyways, this is a hundred and this is a hundred percent our fault, is what we're yes. trying to say. <laughs> we we're too non traditional and it's hard working with graphic designers. <laughs> yeah, they'd be like, yeah, we really don't think that this is going to look good. And we're like, we'll just do it anyways. And then it, it <laughs> ends up looking pretty good. Yeah, so- we always go against like the advice. And I always feel bad, <laughs> but not really. So anyways, we promise that we'll have it up sooner rather than later. But we just wanted to, you know, take full accountability for all of our wrongs. I feel like this is a confession. So any other thing that we any other thing that we want to confess Not that I can think of. Yeah, Yeah, I think we're good. Before we get started, this episode is brought to you by Primal Alchemy, the world's only prana-charged superfood supplements, rare crystals, and quantum health technologies formulated and created to help unlock and actualize your divine physical, mental, and spiritual potential. So if you guys want to support us, if you guys want to support yourselves, honestly, head to the link in our show notes to shop the latest collections of their exclusive lifestyle optimization products that help align you with your divine higher self. Physically, mentally, spiritually, level up. And last but not least, if you guys like what we're doing and want to leave us a review, we love them. We read all of them. And I i mean, I reread them because I'm a psycho. <laughs> Same. Um, so leave us a five-star review if you want to support us that's another great way to do it and you can also find us on instagram at matrix assassins and i think that's it yeah (laughs) okay nicole are you ready to exit the simulation i am let's go we have temperatures right now in the (laughs) 60s this bag right here you don't have to Welcome to Matrix Assassins. Two real girls in a simulated world. Welcome to another episode of Matrix Assassins. Lies in the media, truth in the movies. Ever see the hit Netflix movie Stranger Things? You know, the TV series about the government kidnapping psychic kids who manifested wormholes for time travel? Well, what if I told you that Stranger Things was, you guessed it, 
based in reality. Tonight, we have no other than Peter Moon. Peter is the author of the Montauk Project book series about time travel, as well as the Transylvania series about mysteries discovered beneath the Romanian Sphinx. He is also the proprietor of the Online Time Travel Education Center and a true Matrix assassin. Peter, thank you so much for stepping into the game with us tonight. Oh, you're welcome. It's nice to be with you. For our listeners, can you give a just a brief overview of what the Montauk Project was and who Preston was? And then we'll kind of dive in. The Montauk Project is um, a story uh, based upon the real life experiences of Preston B. Nichols. Preston Nichols was an electromagnet, electromagnetic engineer. He was not only that. He was one of the foremost experts on electromagnetics in the world. Um, there have been efforts to discredit his knowledge or his, his knowledge didn't come from a university education whatsoever. He was a genius in his own right from day, you know, day one or whatever. He was just a genius. He um, had a bizarre life, but he was a technical genius he was involved in the recording industry. His first job in the recording industry was, was for Chubby Checker. No, it was with Time Records. Time Records. It was, a, it was a hit record called I've Had It in about 1957 or 58, I think. And then he, he did the recorded the twist for Chubby Checker. And it went to number one. And he, he formed his own record company eventually uh, or was a partner in it. So he was a recording artist. He was an, a, a genius with electromagnetics, radio, radar, uh, anything. And he ended up working uh, for the defense industry. And he discovered that he was existing on two, two timelines, literally. And the, as the story tells it, he was... Um, he was investigating psychic energy. That was a hobby of his. And he was discovering telepathic energy and using psychics and, and said that telepathic energy was like a radio wave, like radio waves, but it wasn't, but it was similar to it. But he noticed every day at a certain time, the psychics would be blocked at about three o'clock. So he got a radio direction finder, which tells you where, the interference is coming from because it was always happening at three o'clock and there was a signal coming in. He traced it two hours away from his home, all the way to the end of Long Island at the Camp Hero uh, air, air station. And he said, what, what is this? Now, at the same time, it is work. He, uh, he, he goes into this part of the um, plant that he's never been into before. And he went through security and he found that he had an office where he was a vice president and he had no recollection of being a vice president. He would get mail in his home for being a vice president. This was not his status. It was very perplexing and confusing to him. It hit, came to a major head one day when he was having dinner with his cousin, his cousins, his family was having dinner with his cousin's family and his cousin's husband recognized him from Montauk and Preston had no recollection of this. And he said they almost got into a fight over it. 
And then uh, he was putting up a, what he called the Delta T antenna over his uh, lab at his home in the, over the garage. He had a huge garage, which he called Space Time Labs. And, this, and, and he had these three different coils. It was like a pyramidal antenna, octahedronal, one pyramid on top of another pyramid. And he kind of went unconscious and started to remember the time, the timelines. There's a description of the Delta T antenna in the book and how it works and whatnot. And that's when he began to regain his memory. Now, what's interesting is, uh, and I think I mentioned this in, in the Silver Anniversary Edition, when Preston's mother had a funeral, I met his cousin. He said, this is my cousin. I said, oh, the cousin, that cousin. He goes, yep. And I took her aside and I asked her about, and she says, yeah, that's exactly what happened. The husband didn't last as a husband. He was apparently not a very good guy. And uh, so she, she verified the story. And that was interesting because she wasn't into this per se. You know, this wasn't her stuff. Preston was just her cousin. So that's an interesting, uh, you know, validation of his story. This doesn't mean everything that Preston said was true. It doesn't mean everything he said was not true. It's just that he had a very strange life. And then, of course, uh, one of the things he did uh, as his job at AIL was to read the files on the Philadelphia experiment because they wanted him to understand this because he was involved in the stealth. This is part of the stealth technology where by uh, airplanes either disappear or are made to look like they disappear. And this is the, there are three levels of stealth. One is the painting it so, so that the radar uh, is absorbed by the paint. That's the lowest level. Uh, the, the deepest level is actual disappearance of the airplane. So he was studying this and he could never talk about this because he had signed, uh, you know, agreements not to do this. And, but he was very knowledgeable about the Philadelphia experiment. And the Philadelphia experiment was when they were trying to make a ship disappear in 1943. And the people involved in the experiment um, were subjected to electromagnetic fields. They were sub subjected to dimensional shifts and they suffered. So there was a human factor study done after the war and it took place at a place called Camp Upton, which was a convalescent uh, army hospital for World War I. That hospital eventually evolved into the same location as Brookhaven National Laboratories, the premier atomic research facility in the United States. And that project absorbed the human factor study of the Philadelphia experiment. They experimented with the mind of man, with radio waves, how minds were affected how radio could be affected by a human mind. And this evolved into a complex, uh, basically psychic energy, psychic project where people could influence radar, radio waves, other people, and eventually matter, energy, space, and time itself, leading to exotic accounts of experiments that took place that involved time travel. And that, that's 
because it was harnessing the psychic energy of of an individual and amplifying it so that they could influence matter and time. And it was very esoteric project, very uh, bizarre. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. as I say, it's it's breaking what you said earlier about the rigid fixation of how we perceive space and time. This is what a yogi will do when he, he transcends time or space or the universe. He's going to be slowing space and time down in his consciousness. And, and it's going to be like that, except here, you're not dealing with an ordinary yogi. You're dealing with a manipulative situation where they're harnessing that energy and amplifying it and wreaking you know, chaos and havoc with it. I, so in your book, there was also a section about time warping and that they had the ability to even warp time. Can you kind of like touch on, on that? Anytime you change time, you can, you can be called that warping, warping, uh, perhaps the most interesting aspect of warping time. I learned comes after that the book is published and I meet Dr. David Anderson who has time warp field technology. And he's developed, see, basically any planet that's in the universe is spinning. And it's spinning at such a, it doesn't have to be spinning at a rapid rate, but it, it's such so massive that when it spins, it actually distorts space and time. It's a distortion of pure space and time. Because if you just have, time and space out in outer space with nothing there, so to speak, virtually nothing there. There's no up or down. What's up? There's no South. There's no North. It's just space. So when you begin to spin, it actually disport, it it creates a, what's called time dilation. And it actually creates a, what we know is time. There's a there's a platform created. There's a theater created, uh, and, and then living organisms grow, and they're all referenced to that planet. Um, but that's so. So if if you talk, so there everybody's living on that planet in a certain time reference. When you begin to distort that, whether it be through creating a vortex, uh, creating a space time warp field where you're changing the rate of space and time. And this is what Dr. David Anderson does. In a self-contained field, he can uh, uses devices, lasers, that create sort of a plasma-like effect um, that actually slow time down or speed it up. And the Time Travel Education Center goes into the uh, math and physics that demonstrate that time travel is not outside of the bounds of ordinary math and physics. It does not take fancy physics or fancy quantum physics to understand this. Um, but he, it was a breakthrough for him to understand it. So basically, you can uh, go into another time. Uh, you can, and the technology for that at Montauk was exotic. But what Dr. David Anderson has refined it to the point where it's, it's not so discombobulating and unpredictable. However, he does warn that it is 
uh, dangerous to do it because you're changing time. You're mm-hmm. changing time. Mm-hmm. So th- that, that, you know, there are consequences, but, but we don't know too much about uh, his work with this because he's been very silent about this since he evolved this to the point where human beings could go inside of it. He doesn't talk much about it at all. And if I remember correctly from what I was reading regarding the Philadelphia experiment, isn't it the case that the people who were on that ship, the entire ship and the people actually turned up in Norfolk, Virginia, but they started off at a different location? What? No, they, they started That's off crazy. at Philadelphia. They so, started yeah, off okay, so Philadelphia, it was Philadelphia. In the Philadelphia Naval Yard. Mm-hmm. And they then transported to Norfolk, Virginia, which is a off the coast, the huge naval base there, as you probably know. Um, yeah, and was it was it instantaneous, or was it over like a short period of time that was impossible to happen in that? Event? Oh, it, it would have been like, like, like magic. Wow, it would have been there, and then it was also sighted, supposedly sighted, in the Bermuda Triangle. Supposedly. I was I was thinking about that. I was wondering the connection to the Bermuda and, Triangle and the Montauk and the Montauk. It was sighted off of Montauk. These reports are you know, more fleeting, but the Philadelphia experiment has a lot of wind behind it. Of course, there's a lot of interesting stories and synchronicities and uh, about, about that, that incident, but it's by the very nature of it. I I once met one of uh, my old uh, friends from childhood and, you know, this is like 30, 40 years since I'd seen her. And she, she told, she would work to naval intelligence. And when I told her about the Montauk project, she says, oh, this sounds like the Philadelphia experiment. Go, you mm-hmm. know about that? She says, oh yeah. She says, they shredded all that. She knew all about it from naval intelligence, but she said, that's all the information on that is shredded. Mm-hmm. And the people that were involved, I think you kind of, or in the book, it kind of talked about what happened to them after most of them ended up in, the insane asylum, right? And some had some detrimental effects to their brains. Yes, yes. They 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 were referen- their uh their references to ordinary reality and time were distorted. So they suffered mental, emotional trauma associated with going out of this dimension. Did any of them recover or was it kind of like they were just yeah there were varying degrees of recovery, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. they were studied and they were traumatized and you know, I, I think uh, they would have been one one person who showed a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder was a man named Carlos Allende or Carl Allen. And he, he was featured in the book, The Case for the UFO, written by Morris K. Jessup, who was uh, murdered over his investigation of the Philadelphia experiment. And Carlos Allende wrote to him, and and there's even editions of the book with Carlos's notes. Like he he seemed like a common grunt, but he understood peculiarities of space-time physics. And he was, uh, yeah, he definitely suffered post-traumatic stress disorder, but he seemed to know something about the experiment. He's the most famous example Mm -hmm. that sort of came to light. There's also Al Bielek, whose story is... uh, more bizarre, but who, uh, it, it just gets very weird. Um, but he's famous for his accounts of being involved in the Philadelphia experiment with 
his brother, Duncan Cameron, who's now passed away as well. Duncan was a main player in the book. He was a main player in the project. And he was very uh, discombobulated as an individual. He suffered greatly. So he was, uh, you know, he, he had a lot of evidence of post-traumatic stress disorder. And that was part of the microwave oven experiments. Like he actually was the one that was sitting there having this energy directed at him for periods Al, of time. Al Bielek had that. Duncan, he did. Duncan was more generating energy out the, out the transmitter. Mm-hmm. Can you just describe the microwave experiment? Just like for our listeners, if well, no one's well, heard of that. she mentioned microwave, it doesn't really, well, see a microwave is just one wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were doing all, all sorts of waves. They operated primarily at 435 megahertz, which was the approximate window frequency to the human consciousness. So this is a frequency where you can tap into the human consciousness. So this, if they were going to put that radar on somebody and put something behind it, like like the energy of a person's thoughts, they would direct it at them. They, this could be on the base. But what they did is now also anybody who works in radar will notice that different frequencies evoke different moods. So you can just, there's certain numbers of frequencies that'll make people sad, make people happy, make people cry. And they experimented with these. If they're also adding that intent, it, it makes it all the more uh, powerful. And so they would have... Uh, experiments where they would direct energy over the town of Montauk for miles around, and it would affect the consciousness of the animals. It was a, a picture, uh, I guess what you call a, 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 a deer crashed into a place called Salivars at Montauk. It was like a bar and grill. And for years, they had a picture of the deer crashing into it. Somebody painted a mural on the window, window art. And then some documentary was being done later and they're going into Salivars asking about this and nobody knows about it. And It's like it was anybody who drove up would see it. You know, <laughs> I would have taken a picture if I knew it was going to be such a big deal. Um, so there were reports of animals crashing into a phone booth, a deer running full speed into a. And we even have video later day, 1993, of birds acting very strange in the in the uh, uh, vicinity of, of radar experiments they were doing in 1993. That's so, just, it, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to. I didn't no, mean yeah. To it's, it's like, it's, it's not a big secret that radar is. I mean, we know that cell phones affect people, mm-hmm. you know, cell phones run. And I think, I think at about twice the megahertz of the Montauk stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Wait, what? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think cell phones run at about 880, 870. I'm not sure. That is crazy. And then on top of that, like when you plug in your cell phone to charge and you put it right towards your head while you're sleeping. Well, I used to do not that. Good. But not good. Yeah. Not good. And that's kind of just brings me back to my last my 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 last thought was the fact that if you put intent behind frequencies that can change your mood and also change your behavior. What the heck are they doing to us today? You know what I mean? Yeah. The implications of that technology and where it is now. Yeah. It says here, um, AT&T operates at 800 
50 megahertz. Uh, that's, you know, 430. It's, it used to, I think it used to be 880. Uh, but they spared really, us. They turned it down a couple notches. I, I don't know. When it first came out, people were, you know, complaining about that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, just because they say it operates at a frequency, they also have the ability to lie to you. Who's going to look that mm-hmm. up? Yeah. It's like calories on the nutrition label. It's like, really? Yeah. How do, but, you, how do you even know? But, but yeah. And what are all the ins and outs of, of, of cell phones? I mean, there's been whole studies done on those and it's not uh, a particular subject that I have uh, tackled. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, uh, what they did at Montauk was, um, was, was, was legendary and very profound. What do you think if you could name like the three most legendary things off the top of your head that you, that you left after like researching and writing these books, what could, what were they that impacted you? There's three impacts. Cause I, when I attended a meeting, I went to meet Preston Nichols cause he was an inventor. I did not. You know, I went to a meeting, a psychotronics, Long Island chapter of, of the psych, US Psychotronics Association. And I went to meet him and he says, well, you can meet me, but you have to wait for the break because I'm on a panel giving a lecture. The lecture was all about the Philadelphia experiment and the Montauk project. So I think there were different impacts at that one meeting. And one of the first things that, well, first off, they were talking about the Philadelphia experiment, and there were three people in the room, Duncan, Preston, and, and Al Bielek, who were all involved in it in one way or another. So here I was, it sounded like you were getting stuff from the horse's mouth. It, it, that was astounding. I said, wow, this is a story. What a story. I've never heard a story like this. It seemed to unite things. So just being there. And then uh, they were talking about all the German or Nazi involvement at Montauk. That was very interesting to me. I said, wow, that, that adds depth to, and layers to the story. And I would eventually discover there was a whole German contingency faction out there at Montauk. I wrote a book about it called The Black Sun, Montauk's Nazi-Tibetan Connection. And <laughs> it, it goes very wow. deep. Yeah. So it's like, uh, and, and, and the, the book was published in Germany and a, a man who published it, released some of the uh, German UFOs that were done in World War II, prior to World War II and during World War II. So I I got an earful from my friends in Germany or my new friends in Germany, which are now my old friends in Germany, haven't heard from in a long time. But anyway, so there was that element. There was also an occult element, which I go into the book that you you read below. Uh Um, uh, that, That was you know, I won't necessarily go down that rabbit hole right now, but that sort of hit me in in the, the middle of the forehead. That, that was big. And there was this, it was connection to several people in the room that were like monumental. There's like times in your life when you you, you hit a, a big marker. And so when I drove home out of the parking lot and I, I, you know, I remember driving by the building, you know, park, pulling out of the parking lot. And as I went in front of the building to go down the boulevard, going back to my house, I said, now I know why I came to Long Island. I've been in Long Island seven years, seven and a half years at that point. 
I'm not from Long Island. I'm from California. And I go, and I moved to Long Island because, you know, my wife at the time was from Long Island and it, it just made sense. But I said, now I know why I came to Long Island. It was fate. It was destiny. And, and sometimes you have those, those feelings and it's really quite profound. And, and, and so those, that answers your question. Oh yeah. And psychotronics, the definition I have for it is the interface between electronics and the human mind, body, and spirit. Yes. Is that a good description? Very good. Yeah. Okay. What drew you to that? To the psychotronics? Yeah. Well, it was uh, a couple of friends I had at a spiritual group called the Emissaries of Divine Light. And I was a part of something called the Renaissance Business Associates. I was, I was networking in the business community, and all of my networking led me to metaphysical groups, <laughs> not on purpose. I was led there. Some, some lady said, you need to go to this group. You know, because we were talking about her, her extra vertebrae. She had an extra vertebrae. So the, the conversation went to chakras and she says, you know, you should go to this, this group. And through various and sundry meetings of people and networking with business, uh, I had these two friends and actually independent of this, I was, um, there was a device called the Betar. It was a device to balance your electromagnetic field. It was a chiropractor in New York City had this device. It was being marketed by a man named Josh Reynolds of the Reynolds and Reynolds tobacco family. And they, uh, so this guy, this chiropractor was a friend of one of my friends at the emissaries. And by coincidence, but this guy, I was, I went in to see him and he, he says, yeah, get on it. Just here, get on it. And it was a profound experience because whenever I, I used to work in New York city, whenever I would come home in the railroad, you know, 40 minutes on the railroad, I'd be shot. You know, I, I, I was not a good feeling to come, you know, take a subway from work, get on the long Island railroad, wait for the railroad and then buzz home, fight for your parking or, you know, go to your car, drive home. And, you know, you felt like a zombie on some level. After I went on this Betar, I felt nothing. I felt normal after coming home on the Long Island Railroad. So that was was neat. I said, this is something here. So because I was in design and marketing, I wanted to, uh, to get the brochure work for this device. So I was uh, talking to my friends at the emissaries and they said, you've got to see Preston Nichols. He's got a better device. It's a better machine and it's much less expensive and he needs help marketing. it. That's why I met Preston Nichols. So I thought I might be of use to him in marketing his device. Well, when I met Preston, I found out that he created the prototype for the Betar mm-hmm. and that Josh Reynolds consulted him and made it fancy and, you know, used flashing lights on it. It was still a good machine, but Preston's device was more profound. Uh, and it evolved into different evolutions. He called it the biophys for a while and the pyramid of sound. And uh, in fact, it went, uh, you know, one of my friends had a very profound time travel experience on it. 
uh, when she went to his place. Uh, it shook her, shook her very deeply. Okay, so I have to just stop for a second. So when you say like a profound time travel experience, what do you mean by that? Because I my mind automatically goes to to like you close your eyes and then all of a sudden you're like on a battlefield in the Civil War or something like that. And it then was you something wake- like that. For her, it was very personal. It's hard to explain, but she, you know, uh, I had to practically go over to her and almost lay on top of her to get her to come back. Mm. You know, like I had to kind of grab her and make her feel her body. And, and she, cause she was there, you know, it was a bunch of us sitting around and she was just out of it. She was, you know, she could tell you better about it herself, but it was like, she was just out like a, like a light. And, and she was, she, she came back. She's a very sensitive individual. Like okay. this, this woman is so sensitive that when I first met her, she did face reading and I'm having uh, dinner with her and she starts reading my face and she starts telling me stuff about my life. She couldn't possibly know when I was a kid, <laughs> she just picks up on your emotions and she, and it's not even emotions that I'm worried about or thinking. She just reads your life and she's very good. This is how sensitive she is. So, um, you know, she had a profound experience and other people have too. Other one guy, one of Preston's friends said, yeah, he had a time experience on that with that machine. So it's it's subjective, but it, it could be that for you. You could go to a battlefield since you brought that up. <laughs> um, I'm ready for war, baby. Take me there. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, well, I guess for me, when I think about time travel, it is a very hard concept to conceptualize because from a very early age, we are imprinted on space and time. And so to kind of think about these things, you really have to bend, no pun intended, but bend your mind a little bit to think that way. Um, And you had mentioned previously, like there are consequences to time travel. And that lends me to think, is this something that we should not be messing with? Well, David Anderson has talked about that. And he said that uh, there was something called that he did called the brothers and sisters experiment where they took a plant and they went back into time and killed the plant's ancestor. Okay. Okay. And when they checked the plant in present time, the DNA was different after they went back and killed the plant, plant's ancestor. So the plant in present time was still there, was still on the coffee table or wherever it was. But when they went back and killed the plant's ancestor, now the DNA in present time was changed. So in other words, reality had changed in the present. Mm -hmm. It had not changed in such a way that any changes seemed dramatic. Like there wasn't a new president. Uh, There was no new person in the, in the, in the environment, but it was a subtle change. And and so what, what changes are you, what chaos are you creating or havoc are you wreaking? So he said to go back into time or even to observe back into time changes the timeline forever. 
this brings about wow. the question was, well, if it's dangerous to use and you can't use it, what's the purpose of doing the research? Obviously, there is a purpose of doing the research. And in the case of David Anderson, I, I one time asked him, I said, David, I said, you know, you're like Captain Kirk on the Starship Enterprise. He's looking, he's sitting there in his chair looking out into space, except you're looking into time. What, what can you say about that? He says, there's just some things I can't talk about. <laughs> so there is a, a, an awful lot of sensitivity, censorship, and even contradiction when you get into this field of time. I have done a series of videos that's, uh, I think it's $9.99 or something. It's available to paid subscribers of the Time Travel Education Center for free, but uh, it's called The Psychology of Space-Time. And this has to do with this, I've approached the psychology of space-time because there is such a psychological reaction as, as uh, you know, Nicole alluded to earlier. Uh, and, and so the first approach to the psychology of space-time is I take a quantitative approach to psychology rather than a qualitative approach. Because in chemistry, you take a qualitative analysis of elements or you can take a quantitative analysis. What's, what's, the, what's the number? How much, how much element is there versus what's the quality of this element? So in, when it comes to the, psycho, uh, the quantitative approach to psychology, it has to do with dimensions. And that goes over the first 10 dimensions. Uh, explains them, uh, the first three being obvious, the, the fourth, fifth, and sixth, et cetera, become a little more. But these, this is, um, we live in more than one dimension. We're not, we only see three dimensions. And uh, when we begin to perceive time, we're moving into the fourth. But the other issues of the psychology of space-time are power and censorship. Power is a subject so if you would imagine being able to control time, there's a certain amount of power that goes with that. And that's a whole subject that's loaded with booby traps. Um, studies have been done on power because people go crazy when they get around power. And it drives people nuts and makes them do things they wouldn't do if they were in a quote unquote normal situation. The other main issue is censorship. Censorship is a form of control it's a form of power and it's, you know, we are literally, we have sensors in our own human mind. We're not, we don't see things. When somebody takes a hallucinogenic drug, the sensor is removed. It can create too much chaos for the individual. It can create problems. This has to do with what's called a filter. So one has to become uh, astute at filtering one's perceptions. So that's, that's a whole other subject that I haven't had time to tackle in presentations or videos. But the, the human being, and there's a tremendous amount of censorship around this subject. And, I, and I'm not talking about uh, obvious government censorship. There's subtle censorship, esoteric censorship, where you know if you start approaching certain sensitive areas, it's almost like the guardians of the celestial hierarchy will come out and either stop monitoring you, stopping you, and, and in some cases they might help you. 
Is it okay if we go right back to Montauk real quick? Because I thought it was really, it was so interesting when I came across um, the Montauk chair and some of the technology behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what struck me most was when there was discussion around Duncan's ability to materialize things out of the ether. Can you kind of get into that? Well, just basically that um, he could he could influence. They they found out that he could, you know, think of something like a can of beer, and it, it would uh, appear. Things could appear, manifest. And that was sort of a surprise, according to the accounts. In other words, they were manipulating people's thoughts, and they found out that they could actually influence matter and manifest it. I mean, that's an old sort of metaphysical uh, precept that, you know, if you think it, you can manifest it. But here as manifestation became uh, a little more real. It's almost like it's manifesting out of the mind and forming because this gets into the quantum realm. And, and so then when you could manifest matter, it would then sometimes appear out of time. Like you Mm -hmm. might manifest it, say, I want it to appear now, but it doesn't appear now. It appears two hours from now. This will often happen in your own life. If you make a thought or desire, it may not happen when you want it. Make a birthday wish. The power of a birthday wish can be very powerful. You may not get it tomorrow. You know, you know, you may want a red sweater. And nobody gave you a red sweater. But then the next thing you know, you know, you're walking through some store and you see this red sweater that you wanted and it's on sale. And yeah. And it's like, wow, there's the red sweater. I had and- never thought about manifestation and time you know, as, as this, this concept. And I I think it kind of goes back to even when you're directing, you know, these frequencies are being directed at somebody and you put intent behind the frequency. I think it's kind of goes hand in hand when you're putting things with intention behind your thoughts, you can kind of create and manifest in that sense. That's for sure. That's for sure. Yes. And you can experiment with it and you can have, uh, I think people can have success with that. And then when they start getting a little too successful, the universal, you know, come back and, you know, you can't reach beyond like to the point, if you start to, you start influencing the stock market in a big way. <laughs> we have like, someone on that. Talk check about out that. episode 19. <laughs> if you want to learn about that guys. Example, if, if you, were to uh, buy a million shares of some stock. XRP. Is that a stock? Sort of. Anyway, all of a sudden, you would be recognized and known. Who the hell is this person who bought a million million shares of this company? Now, I don't know how it works with electronics today, but in the old days, all of a sudden, there would be a whole team of people finding out who was the person who placed this order because somebody would know who placed it because they would have gone through a broker and and it would have created shockwaves up and down the New York Stock Exchange or whatever exchange it was. 
Electronically, it might be perceived a little differently today. But in other words, if you do something big in the financial world, you, you, all of a sudden you become known and recognized, at least for making that one trade. So what I'm saying is when you do the same thing in the metaphysical world, you get recognized. There's other guardians out there. It's not about stocks. It's about power and influence and a hierarchy, which is sometimes referred to as the celestial hierarchy or its shadow components that, that are going to say, all right, Velo, you are, uh, you've got too many hits. You've got too many hits on YouTube. Oh, and I'll tell you, tell you, I don't know how many hits you get, how many likes you get. But if you get certain past a certain point, you'll start being scrutinized by people who don't care about you right now. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. not it's not about your content; it's about your quantity of con- quantity of views. Then the content will be secondary. Why is she getting the views? Is it because she looks pretty? Yeah, then they don't really care. But if it's about, you know. COVID-19 or, or other controversial topics. This is how the world works. When we get into the subject of time, wow, this is changing the whole platform that we're living in. And as it should, because you had just mentioned, like there comes this sense of power when you are the keeper of time. It's like this archetype, like you think of the keeper of time, it's this like old man with the clock and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, if you can control time, you're affecting everybody's lives. I mean, I couldn't imagine somebody controlling time and how that could affect me indirectly. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, my friend, Dr. David Anderson, has said, you know, they have, have a mastery of time. He said that. He's a mastery of time. But what does well, – yeah. So, in other words – you can have a mastery of fists or fighting, but it doesn't mean somebody can't come who can outfight you. So because he has a mastery of time, it doesn't mean that some people can't, some beings, creatures can't come up and outtime him. We don't know that. We really don't know much about it. He doesn't talk about it. So in other words, he could have, he could be monitored by bigger fish, so to speak, who influence him and limit him from what he can and can't do. Uh, several astrologers and or psychics have told me that he doesn't reveal more to me than he does for my own protection. Because if he gives too much, it could be dangerous to me. I've been told that, not by him, but by astrologers and psychics. He, he tells you what it's, he's, he's interested in protecting you. That's what they tell me. I don't know if that's true. I'm sure if he can control, you know, if he's a master of time, then what kind of outcomes can he manipulate in a sense? So obviously, I'm sure it has to be kept on the DLDL. Well, I I don't think, you know, that's something that it doesn't sound like he would be predisposed to do Mm. uh, unless he would have a specific reason. Uh, I really don't know. That's a whole mystery that is yet to be unveiled. You know, what is his role? What is he doing? How much is he aware? One of his friends in Romania told me 
that she, he said he's probably aware of about 10% of what he's doing. You know, 10%. Like it said that we're, you know, the average human is 10% aware his brain capacity is operating at 10% of its full potential. That's kind of what she's saying about him is that, you know, there's another 90% of his own being that he's not aware of. That could be crisscrossing dimensions and whatnot. You know, he always signs his emails, your friend in time, David. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. But he's, he said that for years. Oh, and, that's so uh, sweet. I love that. Into the Phoenix Project. What about it? Oh, I just, I, so when I came across Phoenix Project and weather control, I kind of wanted to get into that and just kind of ask um, if you could give kind of a breakdown the way you did for the Montauk Project. Well, the Phoenix, Pro- there are three iterations of the Phoenix Project. And the first one begins in Vietnam with manipulating, uh, influencing people with sound frequencies and ancient magical grimoire or grammar, ancient occult stuff that would influence the Viet Cong in a very negative way. That That's not mentioned in the book. That, that was the first iteration of Phoenix Project. Um, and then as the weather control or weather monitoring that was occurring with the Wilhelm Reich technology in the 40s and 50s, that could influence the weather. Is that the Oregon technology? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And and that could influence the weather. And then they kind of mixed that in with the human factor study or the mind stuff. And that sort of bridged into, I guess, what you call Phoenix 2, which became the Montauk Project in its early, early iteration. And then when they started getting into time, that would be the third version. Um. That's just a loose description, but you know, Phoenix, Phoenix is basically refers to a bird that depending on which legend you read after 500 years or after 666 years, it would create a funeral pyre and burn itself. And then from the ashes would arise a new Phoenix and it would then fly off without a memory, it would be a new bird raising from the ashes. It's one of the hidden signs of Scorpio, which is regenerative, the phoenix. Nicole's a Scorpio. <laughs> yeah, that's why I've, I've always liked that archetype of the phoenix. Um, Me too. But specifically with the weather control, weren't there certain accounts from people who lived in that area that they did experience some extreme weather at, at times that it was uncharacteristic, like it snowed? No, there's no question of that. Yeah. And, then, and people, you know, there was a lot of denial out of it after the book came out. But I was just out at Montauk uh, this month. And people, yeah, they re- what, I met some guy who'd been out there. Yeah, he remembered the crazy weather and the weird stories. He remembered them. I, when, after I wrote the book, I couldn't find anybody to back up those stories. I could find some people, but people wanted to aggressively fight it. But this guy remembered the weird weather and the weird stories. That's what Preston was originally told by kids on the beach, weird weather. Um, Montauk now is is pretty much a summer city, um, summer fun city, beach city. Mm-hmm. 
the movie Jaws was based upon Montauk. It was called Amity, but it was based upon Montauk. The fisherman in that was with well, that story of the fisherman was based upon a real fisherman at Montauk. Wow, I did not realize that. Yeah, yeah. And then, so real quick, I'm just going to read an excerpt that I kind of made a strange connection with when I went over it. And it was at the end of chapter eight where the Phoenix Project was actually being discussed. And it struck me to find out that Congress became concerned after they heard of the fact that consciousness of man could be affected by electromagnetics and that when they found out that it's possible to develop equipment that could change the way that a person thinks. And after they found this information out, they actually became concerned that if the wrong people got a hold of that technology, they themselves could lose their minds and potentially be controlled, which basically led that entire project to quote unquote being disbanded, I guess, in 1969. And while I read that, it just kind of made me think about this new mysterious Havana syndrome that's been I don't know the Havana syndrome. Okay. So it's actually it's this syndrome that's supposedly sickened hundreds of US officials over the past few years. And just today there was a report that Kamala Harris's flight was delayed by several hours after her office was informed. Um, by the U.S. Embassy in Vietnam that there was a recent report of this syndrome. And some people are saying that they think it's like targeted energy weapons that are being directed at certain officials, and they're experiencing a lot of um, symptoms that align with electromagnetic sickness. Are they suggesting that it's coming from Havana? So no, I don't think they're suggesting it's coming from there. I think that's where some of the first reports of it were, but it's happening in other places and it's actually targeting certain individuals. So I think there's been some blame that's been put on Russia, sometimes on China. Um, but if you look it up, you'll find a bunch of articles discussing this. this, syndrome. Is, this is, um, Russia has been documented as having done this many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, against some official, I think it was a British official, it might have been an American official. So Russia's old hat with this. Um, yeah, this is nothing new. Uh, the fact that it's getting some play is, you know, perhaps more of the story than the fact that they actually do it. Um, I, I don't know why they call it Havana. Havana is loaded with, uh, and Castro himself was a big practitioner of Santeria. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Centuria, and that's what you know kept him going so strong for so many years. He took on the whole world. He he outsmarted the Americans. He outsmarted the Russians. He used them both. This tiny little country. He also outsmarted Coca Cola, and you know because Coca Cola funded him, and then he turned his back on Coca because they wanted the sugar fields. So you know Castro was this incredibly successful manipulative politician, perhaps like no other. And he's even personally responsible for freeing Nelson Mandela and going in and invading South Africa through Angola in in the role of a good guy, although he's Mm -hmm. mostly known as a bad guy. But I'm saying he's, you know, he was a very powerful, you know, politician. If you think of Castro, uh, he took over in about 1960 and you know, he got more press, and I was alive in 1960. He was getting uh, as much press as Kennedy or the premier of Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev, and he outlasted 
all those presidents and all those people, you know, I mean, this guy was a survivor like no other that theoretically could have been wiped off with not just atomic bombs, but with carpet bombs. You know, he could have, he could have easily been gone in and extracted, but you know, uh, sovereign nations don't like to go in and wipe out other sovereign nations. It's not good public relations, especially when, you know, so it's, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the power of magic, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's, it's in a line with like the dark black magic, the Santeria. So I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on stranger things. Did Netflix reach out to you and let you know that they wanted to create a show about the Montauk project? No. What had happened was it was published in, uh, I think it was initially, there, there was, it was two things. There was a guy named Brian Murphy. I think his name is a Ryan Murphy. Yeah. Who was going to take on the Montauk project and they would give these, all this publicity. Is there nothing this man will not take on? So I sent him a, uh, a certified green card with, you know, an infringement warning. And you know what? The certified letter was returned. Can't deliver this. What the hell? I sent it again. Then Fox said something that there was going to be this show, uh, Montauk, it was going to be called. And I sent them a certified letter, green card, saying, warning them of potential copyright infringement, whereupon they changed the name to Stranger Things from Montauk. Right, because they were going to call it Montauk. Yeah, and then they changed the Stranger Things. They changed the location so that, you know, making every effort to avoid infringement, which they were clearly inspired. In fact, uh, years later, I actually saw the proposal from the Duffer Brothers basically outright calling it the Montauk Project. They were trying to steal the story. And they, they insisted on calling it Montauk even after the green car, but it was they weren't allowed to do that. That's how arrogant. In fact, I found out a lot of, from I talked to an attorney uh, who was successfully represented and told me that many of these stories are just ripped off and he's representative and he's beaten Spielberg. He beat the Matrix people, the Matrix movie. The stuff mm-hmm. was stolen. And what they do is they build into their cost of doing business settlements. So if, if the person has their work stolen, they've got to fight through the courts to get. And if they fight, they'll, they'll get paid if they can prove their case. But this is just the cost of doing business for these people. So they were not able to successfully steal Montauk Project story. They, you know, sort of co-opted the idea and uh, they have not stolen the story by any means and it's a problem because anybody who deals with the story they will dilute it and minimize it even if they're advocating even even like say if if you ladies did your own story on it based upon what you know you haven't read all the books on it so you'd be even with your best efforts you'd be diluting it significantly and that's 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 how everything's set up to, to work. Uh, so we're trying to avoid that right now. 
Did you watch it? I've never watched Stranger Things. You're not missing anything, to be <laughs> honest. Well, I know people have told me it's fantastic and, you know, but I, 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 I don't, I can't, it's very hard for me to watch Netflix. It, oh know, yeah, I, absolutely. I've, I've watched some things on it, but I think Vilo, you were the one that pointed out to me that it's all content. Satanic, satanic AF. <laughs> what's, what's AF? <laughs> As fuck. <laughs> Part of my language. AF just means like satanic as fuck. Just it just it, means oh, like oh, it's it. like I a slang. It. Yeah. yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, with all the the algorithms that are used and how it kind of pushes you in a certain direction, if you view certain things, it recommends other things related to it. Yeah, it's all in a it's all an agenda. Um, I did have one other one question though, because so I did watch I did watch the Stranger Things and or Stranger Things, and there was this one part where this girl gets lost in this other dimension and she can't get back. Did that occur in the Montauk Project? Well, supposedly, uh, they were sending people into bums or homeless people back into time uh, with video recorders to record stuff. But many of them would get lost because it wasn't, you know, there's a lot of random factors. It's not like they were considered uh, must-save personnel. And this is the way the story goes. I don't know. Certainly mm -hmm. there is uh, – anytime you're dealing with time travel, people who've time traveled or claim they've time traveled, usually there's a lot of fragmentation of consciousness. And it's, uh, it's hard to put two and two together from a linear perspective. So that's always a challenge. That's just such a wild concept to think about. It is. Well, what happens is we're, we're out here on the horizon of, of consciousness, you know, back in, back in the days of the old West, there was a frontier. And if you go beyond the frontier, you know, it's unmapped. Nobody knows, you know, you're dealing with natives. You're dealing, you're not dealing with the regular civilization. And, and that's what happens when you're dealing in these realms of the frontier, whether it be time travel, whether it be um, occult stuff. And you, you see what happens when people get too much into the fringe of conspiracy. They become very polarized and imbalanced. And you see this a lot in political conspiracy, where people get extreme and they get nuts. And then sometimes you'll even have the government feeding the conspiracies covertly to make all conspiracy look crazy. But so this is it. This is what we live with. Yeah, it's a way to discredit all of it. And I think the actual factors that are true and that have been well-researched kind of get clustered in with the entire cloud of everything else. So it's it's easier for people to just discredit all conspiracies under a blanket for that reason. Yes, and it makes people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Because it, again, here, you're taking away their, if you, and we're not even talking about their reference to space and time. You're taking away their, the teddy bear that they call Donald Trump, the teddy bear that they call the Democratic Party, the teddy bear that they call Jesus, or whatever they're 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 teddy bear too. 
<laughs> you know, if you take away that teddy bear, all of a sudden they can't think, you know, so it, it upsets them to think without a reinforced belief, without examining existentially whether that belief is valid or not. So but if you threaten it, they get threatened because they it's a belief, not a not knowledge. It's it's not a, a knowledge that uh, of of Jesus. It's a belief in Jesus. It's a and then with this incredible commercial. I mean, sure you ladies saw it with the the Trumpy bear. You remember the Trumpy bear? Yes, mm-hmm. that, that was that was fantastic for it. <laughs> but it was like they were appealing to Trumpy bear. I mean, that was like wow. This is a teddy. He's a live teddy. It has nothing to do. It's just like this this building this teddy bear affection for Donald Trump. And and you know, in his best, at his best, he is not a teddy bear in real life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is what people, you know, don't like their teddy bear taken away from them. Yeah, that kind of that's triggering um when I was reading through the book, you mentioned, or in the book, it mentioned how each of us are born into a certain time and we're started on a vector based on that specific snapshot in time and how we understand the world based on our placement. And I just thought that was really interesting because of exactly what you were saying, you know, the difficulty of validating certain information that we learn and not having lived through that time, it could definitely be a dilution of what actually happened in the past or what might happen in the future. So um, I don't know if there's really more to add to that, but it just was well, there is something me- to add to it. And that's, yeah. you know, um, time, the time you were born is, is what astrologers go by. And there's a whole incredible four plus thousand years old study of astrology and so the exact time you're born is significant what you are born into now when you go to your first day of school it's a whole new reality it's a new teacher new kids and there is this current of energy that's in the the classroom that evolves and builds from the first grade the second grade's different the third grade's different All of a sudden, new school, junior high school is a completely new dynamic. High school, college, whatever, all these changes, the first day at work, these are like momentous events in one's life. And it's all about time. And we look at it, we usually don't so much look at it from that time, but it's about time. You know, so that, that, and, and you can pinpoint time and, Look at it from a different perspective. Um, astrology is is what's called a nonlinear science, and it doesn't follow the rules of linearity. It's it's what called a right brain or a nonlinear science, and it has to do with correlations and synchronicity. It's a different part of the brain, the creative side of the brain. So that so time from that perspective is wow, wow. It's it's you know how people you know uh most of the world gives some credence to astrology whether they should or not is another question but they they say oh yeah because it's when you were born when you know when you when you went to school when when you 
you know, where you meet people and how you meet people determines the rest of your life because there are connections that can influence you, who you get married to. Pivotal, pivotal point in life. It changes everything. Changes the whole dynamic structure of your life. And then a kid, wow, <laughs> even more. So those are thoughts on time. And of course, here we're looking at it, looking at it more abstractly, more distanced from, from just, uh, and, and then whenever you see somebody talking about it on TV or something, it's a very much diluted version of what I have to offer. They'd rather not, rather not give me too much airtime. Sometimes it's conspiratorial and sometimes it's just not digestible for them. It's too much to digest. It's, it's not a meal that's palatable. It's, it's almost like a foreign diet. If, if you're used to eating American food, you might not do well out of the country. <laughs> What's the most non-digestible part about it, do you think? About what? About time. Oh, about time. I think the most undigestible part about that is that if, you know, is that, is that it could create too much chaos in an individual's psyche if they lose their time reference. Like I, I know a lady who, who will see multiple timelines in front of her and it's, it's very distorted. It's very, what do you call it? Incongruous. It's, it's disturbing. She'll see multiple timelines in front of her. It's chaotic. And she suffered as a result. So I think if, if there's too much, you know, it's like, it's like being freaked out. It's like, imagine now, just imagine, you know, you walked into work and instead of walking in and seeing all the people you'd see at work, you were in China and everybody was speaking Chinese and they didn't make any sense to you. And you stood out and they're kind of pointing at you and you don't know what to say. That's kind of an example of, of you start losing your reference to time. It's, it's kind of like going crazy. Mm-hmm. Or like an existential crisis. Do you yeah. think you're playing with fire? No, I'm not. Other people are. I'm very grounded. I've got little little fire in my astrology chart. I think I have one planet in, with fire, and that's Pluto. And and so now I, I don't. Uh, I'm very careful, and uh, I, I've never felt that I was playing with fire. Based on everything that we talked about and what we mentioned about um, electromagnetic frequencies and the effect it has on people and just kind of all the implications that can be imagined. I was just wondering, and I know um, you had mentioned you're not hundred percent sure about what's going on with the cell phone companies and everything, but um, there, there are patents that go back quite a while um, regarding how like television screens, computer screens, phone screens can actually change frequencies and affect behavior 
or even mindset, kind of similar to the experimentation that was being done in what we discussed. And I, I just kind of wonder what your thoughts are on like the 5G technology, the Starlink satellites that have been launched, you know, by by Elon Musk, and kind of what some of the the implications are for this type of technology going into the future. People have studied that very deeply. When 5G was first being talked about, I was at a seminar. And all these doctors and stuff got up and expressed their deep concern about it. And, you know, they didn't have anything good to say about it. It's uh, not my specialty. So I said, if all these people are studying it, they don't need me studying it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's uh, like a niche. Yeah. But I'm saying this is the new world we live in. Mm-hmm. And we're being subject to a lot more electromagnetic frequencies, which makes it all the more important to build up your own immune system. I practice Qigong, which is is very good for that. And um, I pay a lot of attention to on my immune system and solving the world's problems. When it comes to that department, most of my energy is focused on this time stuff and some of the other work that I've been doing. It's very focused and directed. It's so I I don't, I I leave some of that to other people. You're staying in your lane. Okay. So are you ready for our last question? Yep. What is one song that penetrates your soul? Wow. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is my daughter's music. Oh, that's so sweet. Well, she's a, she's a musician. Is she on Spotify? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Plug it, baby. What's her name? N-O-O-S-A. Noosa. She's very popular. And she's a great singer and a great composer. She composes her own music, Nusa. And she's written so many songs. And I think my favorite song is, what is it? It's called called Heartache. But the reason I like it is not because of heartache. It starts off um, back in time. She's talking about going back in time. So I've used it for some of my videos to introduce going back in time. It's not her favorite, you know, she can, it's not one of her most successful, but it's a, it's a very, uh, it's got a catchy tune. I'll, I'll, I'll even play it here um, for a second, give you a few bars of it. Um, and because she did it. Uh, here we go. You got it. You got it. I like it. How awesome. You can play a little bit of it. Oh yeah. Let's. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> How amazing. Well, we will add this yes. to our playlist. Yeah, and, and she's her I should tell you, and it's not her most popular song by any stretch of the imagination. But I like it because of the time theme. It's kind of mm-hmm. like about love and a heartache. But I, I co-opt it and take it, and I'll, uh, I'll probably want to use it for a theme song, if we do a documentary on it or something. Oh, absolutely! That would make a, a an amazing theme song. Oh, oh, I know it's it's like written like a theme song. So yes, that, that it touches, has like this like eighties vibe, mm-hmm. to it, like these synths. Yeah, well, yeah, that, that that touches me because it's her, um, oh. and. Uh, but um, 
if if I were, oh God, uh, there is there is so much music that Preston Nichols did, uh, helped record or record that was the there's a book called The Music of Time that I did with him. It talks about all of his stuff with the music, and some of that stuff is is very penetrating. Uh, and he would take a, one of the songs he would do would be. Uh, he would take the, the song, it's called Beach Baby by a group called First Class. And he would take this boom box and you would feel an energy over the song. Not, not just hear it, you'd feel the energy hmm. coming off of it. There was that and also what happened on a song called Sky High and a song called Shannon, all done about the same time, more or less. And if you do other songs, you wouldn't feel that energy coming out of the boom box. And he said that these songs were all witness to time. Uh, wow. That's that is, so neat. That's I'll have amazing. to check out all of them. If yeah. you were to see Preston's lecture on that, that, that he did, I don't think we ever recorded it, but he just, he was fascinating. He'd play all this music and he'd have equipment there and he'd tell the history of rock and roll from a very weird, weird angle. And uh, so th there were a lot of, time uh uh so anyway so thank you for your your question thank you for your interview and uh we can come back when you you finish the the new book that i've done with douglas dietrich called oh, the definitely. Roswell. i'm really excited to read that i actually read a book on roswell back when i was in i think late middle school early high school so well my daughter said that that is not a very interesting subject to her generation uh, I always I told, thought it was I, fascinating well I told well Nicole you're just weird I know it's true <laughs> book reports said, in said, second grade about alien abductions over there well, no. then I, I said there's a tv show on it she says no that show's old well there's a new Roswell show the new Roswell yeah uh, I haven't seen that one yet and Peter, before you sign off do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you where they can get your books Yes, the good idea. Um, so you can uh, the the books are available at skybooksusa.com, skybooksusa.com. They're also available on Amazon and in many bookstores. And then I would also invite people to go to the time travel research, time travel education center.com, time travel education center.com, where you can uh, sign up and watch seven free videos that will explain the math and physics of time travel, demonstrating that time travel does not violate simple mathematics and simple physics. It's at an eighth grade level, although it does take perfect. It does take some <laughs> concentrated attention because, but I'm saying the math is at an eighth grade level. It doesn't require anything more than that in terms of the math. And, and you would, uh, probably both would probably absorb those I feel because of your interest. Totally. And eighth grade math I can do now, if we're talking about ninth grade math, ooh, <laughs> we're getting well, up there, but you know, if you understand the Pythagorean theorem, Oh, I can kill. Uh, yeah. That's all you need. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. <laughs> that's all you need to know. <laughs> well, thank you again, Peter. This has been the best time of our lives, no pun intended. So thank you again for coming on. You're welcome. It was nice to be with you. I look forward to coming back. 